The difficulties that the judges face uh, are enormous because the judge is to be the impartial listener of the evidence and the, as the lawyers present the case. Now, here's a party that has no lawyer, and what is the judge supposed to do? There's a special book of guidance, but it's, I've talked to many judges in California. It's a terrible problem for the judge. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is away on business today and unable to join us. Uh, today's show is sponsored by Clio, the web-based practice management software, which is available online at goclio.com. For uh, many years now, uh, it has been the case that uh, if you are accused of a criminal violation in this country. You have a constitutional right to an attorney. Uh, as set out by the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Gideon v. Wainwright in 1963, but such a right does not attach uh, to civil matters. Um, California this month made history by uh, enacting uh, a a law that will put forward a pilot program uh, for civil Gideon uh, in that state. And other states have been uh, looking at initiatives in this area. And there has been probably for six years now or so uh, a a growing movement uh, in favor of uh, promoting a a right, a civil Gideon right, so to speak. Uh, We're going to talk about that today, about what's happening nationally and uh, what's happening in California. And joining us today are two guests who are going to help us do that. Uh, First of all, let me introduce our first guest, uh, Robert L. Rothman. Robert is a partner of the firm Arnal Golden Gregory in Atlanta uh, and co-chair of his firm's business litigation practice group. He is the immediate past chair of the uh, 70,000-member section of litigation of the American Bar Association. Uh, And uh, at last year's uh, uh, meeting of of the section, uh, the focus of the meeting was on Civil Gideon. Uh, Bob Rothman has experienced in a wide variety of complex business litigation disputes and First Amendment law issues, and uh, he has been instrumental in many ways in, in backing Civil Gideon and uh, working to bring it to fruition. Uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Bob Rothman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And joining us next today is uh, attorney James J. Brosnahan. Uh, Jim is a senior partner with Morrison & Forster in San Francisco. He has particular expertise in civil and criminal trial work. He's also a member of the California Commission on Access to Justice, the 25-member commission of lawyers and judges, and also includes academic, business, labor, and community leaders, was established 
to explore ways to improve access to civil justice for Californians living on low and moderate incomes. Uh, Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jim Brosnahan. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, it's a it's an honor to have both of you here today. Uh, and uh, uh, before I get started, I, I should just say that I'm I myself am, am involved uh, as a trustee of the Massachusetts Bar Foundation, and and here in Massachusetts, we have been uh, the Bar Foundation has uh, provided funding for uh, a Civil Gideon uh, uh, pilot project uh, that's uh, underway in this state as well. Uh, but uh, what I want to do is is begin by talking a little bit about the the history of, of this movement and and Bob uh, uh, as the uh, immediate past chair of the section of litigation I know you worked a lot on this perhaps you could give us uh, some background on the genesis of civil Gideon well uh, the, the concept of a need for civil Gideon uh, goes back quite a ways uh, the 1981 decision of the United States Supreme Court in Lasser uh, versus the Department of Social Services of Durham County, North Carolina, was a case in which the Supreme Court considered the need for or the right to appointment of counsel in a case of uh, termination of parental custody. And it determined there that the right to civil counsel, or the right to counsel, I should say, requires, as it did in the criminal context in Gideon, a deprivation or a risk of deprivation of personal liberty. And so from that point forward, it became the mission of a number of lawyers to try and find a way to either under state constitutions or statutory law to find a way to introduce a right to counsel since the Lassiter decision foreclosed the possibility, um, at least for now, at a federal constitutional level. And and I know that the ABA uh, has been... uh at the forefront of this, uh, especially in the last couple of years since the uh, House of Delegates uh, adopted a resolution uh, uh, encouraging states to uh, consider civil Gideon. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the ABA's uh, involvement in this. Yeah, In 2006, a resolution was brought to the ABA House of Delegates uh, that that called upon federal, state, and territorial governments to provide legal counsel as a matter of right at public expense to low-income persons in adversarial proceedings where there are basic human needs at stake. Those needs, for example, would include shelter or sustenance, safety, health, or child custody to be determined by each jurisdiction as it took up the matter. Uh, That that resolution was approved unanimously by the House of Delegates, which has more than 500 uh, lawyers in it from throughout the United States representing uh, all types of communities, all types of practices. And, and I think it's significant that the vote was unanimous. It showed a very strong level of support uh, for a right to counsel, particularly where basic human needs are at stake. Well, we can talk more about uh, what's happening nationally, but I, I want to turn a little bit to what's happened, uh, what's developed in California and bring Jim Brosnahan into the conversation. Jim, uh, tell us more about uh, the law that was signed uh, last month by uh, Governor Schwarzenegger. Well, that that law provides for a pilot program, as you suggested, that's uh, been met with great enthusiasm by the judges and the uh, lawyers of California, and I suspect the, the potential clients. It is a limited program to determine the efficacy of uh, providing counsel 
and that uh, which counties it's going to be in and the design of it, it, it was left as uh, quite properly to the judicial uh, the judicial oversight group that's going to put this together, but it will have built into it examinations of how well it's working, what it costs, for example, and I hope we talk about those kinds of issues and, and how it's done. But in California, what has happened is the problem of the unrepresented has gotten worse and worse. And uh, the, uh, the bill that was passed, as some of your listeners may know, was passed at a time of extraordinary financial difficulty in the state of California. And it was passed through the work of our chief justice on the California Supreme Court and people working with him and longstanding uh, proponents of the idea to make it concrete that a mother cannot be deprived of her child if she has to go to court without a lawyer and can't deal with the technical aspects of it or a person ought not to lose their house if they have no way of defending themselves against someone who very often might be represented. So these are the realities of California's experience, and I suspect are somewhat reflected around the country. Have there been other uh, uh, legislative efforts in other states? I, I was actually surprised. Uh, I had thought I had read somewhere that, that California's was was the first, uh, but I came across a law review article that suggested there have been uh, statutes passed in some other states uh, on a much more limited basis than what California is proposing to provide. Well, there's a, there's a statute that I've been following in New York City. Uh, it hasn't been passed, though, I don't think. I don't, I'm not sure the mayor has signed it, but it was signed by 23 of the members of the, I hope I used the right title, the city council there in the, in the city of New York, that would provide for counsel for older people who have eviction issues, and that reflects what you just said, that it's a high degree of specialization. I think the ABA should get a lot of credit for having thought very carefully about what the proper extent of this these rights might be, and that resolution that was referred to by Bob it was was very clear that they have to be those kinds of things that really demand uh, this kind of a program, and there are many of those in the courts of California. We have courts uh, in California uh, where uh, 70, 80, or 90 percent of the people that come to court, for example, in our family court, are unrepresented. And um, there are other uh, activities. We we just did a uh, amicus brief uh, in up in the state of Alaska, uh, where a trial judge had held that a mother being deprived of her child against a husband who had a lawyer uh, had a right and. And the ABA actually uh, supported that amicus brief, and it was written for them. So it is an—it's a national effort, and I suspect that what's fueling it is that the critics of lawyers for the poor and middle class um, have overachieved in a way in terms of the court system, and the judges certainly are seeing it on a daily basis, and it just doesn't seem right to a lot of the judges in California. Well, let me, I just, just to tell you what I found, I, I had came across a, a law review article from the Toro Law Review, which references, it says, it said the passage of three statutes in the past three years is tangible evidence of uh, efforts toward uh, 
toward this. It mentions that July 2008, Louisiana enacted a statute requiring the appointment of counsel for a parent facing termination of parental rights. Uh, August 2006, New York expanded the right to counsel already in place for child custody cases. Uh, and in June 2005, Florida enacted legislation requiring legal representation to children uh, who may be eligible for uh, I think these uh, issues would commend easy. themselves to almost any of your listeners. If the issue is whether a parent can lose their children or the uh, person who's in a dwelling can lose their house or their apartment, whatever it might be, that uh, they ought not to have to go to court. Uh, lawyers perform functions that are somewhat understood by the public, but not necessarily perfectly. And lawyers uh, do a lot of important and good things for clients. And among other things, they help the court to get to the right result. So it isn't just the individual client. It's uh, And this was an underpinning of the California bill. It was that it will help the courts to come to uh, appropriate results in cases. Bob, there actually are a number of states, in fact, the the vast majority of states that provide either uh, statutorily, if not uh, in their constitutions, for right to counsel in termination of parental rights. Many states also provide rights in dependency or abuse and neglect cases. Or um, it, going back to the, the, the physical liberty issue from Lassiter, civil commitment proceedings or involuntary guardianships, uh, those types of cases also might have in some states, a statutory right, but the broader right that's needed in in these basic human rights cases, uh, uh, you know, eviction from your home or foreclosure, um, safety such as um, uh, physical abuse cases, uh, those are those are cases where the right does not exist uh, in most states, and that's what the ABA tried to address. And part of the part of the uh, basis on which the ABA went forward and uh, is the documentation that's been provided by Legal Services Corporation, which did an extensive study, um, which it recently updated, which is called Documenting the Justice Gap. And what they found was that for every person who is served by Legal Services Corporation that meets the eligibility criteria of 125% of the federal poverty standard, um, which is a pretty low threshold, um, many people are above that and can't afford a lawyer. But at that level, they served about a million people a year. And for every person they served, they turned away a person. So they could only serve 50% of the eligible people who came to their offices looking for representation in these types of cases. But then beyond that, there are many millions of people who simply don't even bother, either because they think there's no hope that they'll get representation, or uh, they're not aware that they have a legal issue that where a lawyer could be of assistance to them. Um, and so then they f might find themselves in court, and Jim was correct, but state courts are being flooded by self-represented litigants faced with these issues that are going to have a critical impact on their lives, an impact much more than, than a say, a misdemeanor for which they could be sentenced to 30 days in prison or a year in prison even, um, but, you know, deprivation of your home, being thrown out on the streets, et cetera, uh, physical safety issues and health issues. Um, and they can't get a lawyer because there's no right um, either under the state uh, statutes or the state constitution and 
and based on Lassiter under the federal constitution, to have counsel appointed. And um, the number's growing. I mean, people focus on the fact that we're in such a deep recession and there have been so many more people put out of work, and certainly that's increased the need dramatically. But this is a need that's existed for many years before the recession. It exists in good times as well as bad times, and it's just something that we need to come to grips with if our justice system, in fact, is going to provide um, fair and equal access to justice, which I think is a fundamental right or should be a fundamental right in a democratic society. The the difficulties that the judges face uh, are enormous because the judges, to be the impartial listener of the evidence and as the lawyers present the case, now here's a party that has no lawyer and what is the judge supposed to do? There's a special book of guidance, but it's. I've talked to many judges in California. It's a terrible problem for the judge because, the, for example, we had a lawyer go out just to witness one of these courts, and she saw a party come in on a custody matter, and there had been requests for admissions which by which a party, if they don't answer within, let's say, 30 days, they're bound by them. And, of course, the person had no lawyer, didn't know they were supposed to do it. All those things are now established for purposes of the legal record. A lawyer would have known that, would have dealt with it. This makes for great arbitrariness in the process. Well, what's what's happening uh, outside of California uh, in terms of uh, trying to, to uh, replicate what California's done? Is there any uh, activity in other states? I mean, I mentioned I know there's a pilot project here in Massachusetts, and I, I've seen a few others around the country. Uh, Bob Rothman, what's what what's what are you seeing elsewhere outside of California? I, I'm not aware of any other states that have enacted legislation the way California has. I think uh, I think this is a breakthrough, um, and and even though it's somewhat limited in its scope in in terms of the types of issues that can be addressed and the number of locations within the state that will be selected for the pilot project, it's a wonderful first step. Um, I'm not aware of any other state uh, actually moving forward at that kind of a level yet. I do know that there's a very broad uh, coalition of uh, lawyers and non-lawyers um, and, and interested groups who are working together through a national coalition to identify opportunities uh, both to uh, file litigation and support litigation that's already pending, where the right to counsel could be established by judicial decision, as well as to uh, seek opportunities to to uh, lobby state legislatures to try and enact additional uh, programs such as the one that's just been enacted in California. But, it, but I'm not aware of it actually happening anywhere else. There's a very interesting contrast that your listeners might be uh, glad to hear. The, uh, the Lisbon Treaty, uh, which now governs 27 European countries, uh, was cleared by the Czech government last week and attached to that treaty is a is a statement of rights, and I've read it. One of them simply provides that any any litigant who can't afford counsel in a civil matter will be provided counsel. And those 27 nations have agreed to the treaty. I understand that there's a right to opt out and that there may be, uh, I don't want to misstate the number, but there may be three or four countries that are opting out of certain of the provisions. So it isn't a unified business, but the, the legitimate question is how can they do it? In Ireland, Mary Robinson, who's a great human rights leader, went to the European court and established that each Irish 
citizen has a right to counsel. They now have 36 offices that are uh, supported, um, and uh, they deal with any any civil case at all. I think it's a legitimate question for us in the United States to ask how it is that these industrial countries uh, can can do this, and why are they doing it? Uh, in, in the continuing discussion about the need for people to have lawyers in our court. We're going to take a short break at this point. We'll be back in just a moment to continue our discussion of civil Gideon in the United States. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Don't miss out on the latest in new media marketing opportunities for your firm. Contact Deb Kernan at 781-551-9960 and learn all about the Web 2.0 revolution. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are back discussing Civil Gideon with our guests, Attorney Robert L. Rothman, partner of the firm Arnold Golden Gregory in Atlanta, and Attorney James J. Brosnahan, senior partner with Morrison and Forster and a member of the California Commission on Access to Justice. Uh, and Jim, you were just talking about efforts in other countries and, and uh I, I heard echoes of of the healthcare debate uh, that we're currently uh, hearing you know, that, in this country. That is so interesting because it has been true up to now that we haven't really been on the public agenda. Uh, you don't hear about legal care. Uh, I, I agree with the, the the reasons to debate healthcare, but you don't hear about legal care. It's been a little bit of a secret, um, and yet uh, in its own way, very very important. Well. I mean, I assume uh, this California law will at least give a boost to the discussion and, and uh, perhaps uh, encourage more people to talk about it. Uh, we we tried to get uh, some people on this program who are uh, opposed to this idea of civil Gideon and uh, were not successful in doing that. I, I, I assume uh, that the, the strongest argument against civil Gideon uh, is based on cost. Uh, Robert, is that a, a fair argument to raise in terms of this, in terms of civil Gideon? Well, I, I agree that's an argument that people are raising, but I, but I don't think it's uh, a correct analysis. Uh, the problem is there's not a lot of uh, uh, empirical studies out there to prove this yet, but perhaps one of the things that the California Pilot Project might provide, and maybe the, the uh, projects that you talked about in Massachusetts, is that um, there are many people who think, and, I, and my understanding is that, for example, the chief justice in California supported this pilot project on the basis that there would be an offset of the cost through savings of social services uh, that have to be funded by the state. Uh, that that well could offset the cost. Uh, and that'll the, be uh, tracked, Bob. Uh, it'll be tracked very carefully to show, and, and by uh, the commission's already discussed uh, the need to have objective 
critiques of the pilot program. I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, it's going to be very interesting and I think very productive. And there are some limited empirical studies that are out there. I think what we need is this type of a pilot project that, that will show us whether or not, in fact, this is the case, and I believe it will be. I think the other reason that cost alone is not the issue here uh, is is there's going to be benefit to the judicial system, as, as Jim mentioned earlier. The courts are very badly clogged at this point. As you know, many judicial systems, state judicial systems are under a lot of budget pressure, as state governments are. A lot of their time is being devoted to these cases involving self-represented litigants. And not only does it put a judge in an awkward position in terms of being, on the one hand, neutral, uh, but on the other hand, not wanting to sit by idly when a case is turning out the wrong way or the way justice other than the way justice would require because there's a litigant who doesn't know about a statute or a discovery right that they have or how to present an argument. So so it's going to help the judges if counsel are present on both sides. It's also going to allow these cases to be handled much more expeditiously because right now with all the uh, instructions and assistance that, that self-represented litigants need, they don't understand the process, they don't understand the procedures, the hearings take longer frequently, they have to be rescheduled. And while that's going on, other cases, civil cases, for example, um, simply can't be reached. And so there's delays that parties are bearing and their clients are bearing because cases are going on and on. They can't get on a docket for a trial, while judges, understandably, are having to vote, devote substantial time to all of these self-represented litigants. So there's a lot of ways of looking at cost, and it's not just the, the absolute dollars that have to be spent in order to provide counsel in these basic need cases, and I think all of that needs to be taken into account. Legal services lawyers, according to our uh, data out here in California, make about a third of what their classmates make uh, at various stages, and they don't go much above that as the years go by. And uh, I remember talking to a very able legal services lawyer of 25 years' experience, and he was then making after all that effort, he was then making what a beginning lawyer would make. At that time, it wasn't all that much money. So uh, there's that. There's the function of what lawyers do. Lawyers very often settle matters, negotiate matters. It doesn't have to go to courts. Um, it, it saves money. Um, uh, there is, we actually, uh, the, the Bar Association of San Francisco has a committee, and I'm co-chair of that. We did a budget for the state of California as to what it would cost. In this discussion, you have to mention the pro bono work of lawyers. It's enormous, and uh, it doesn't fill the need. It can't possibly fill the need anywhere, I think, in the United States. But it is uh, good lawyers um, spending their time representing people who otherwise wouldn't have a lawyer. And the value of it in our budget uh, is, is quite a number. It's quite a large number, and uh, I think the, the the public would say, well, if we're going to do this, the the legal community has to contribute. Well, the fact is they, they not only are contributing, but they have, and the efforts uh, through the ABA again uh, to to make it part of our sort of professional moral makeup that one is supposed to do these uh, pro bono cases. Um, uh, helps to defray the cost, which was your original question. What's what's it going to cost? The part of the answer is it's going to be free, but uh, then it is there is going to be a cost, 
and um, uh, that'll be debated and so forth. But in terms of priority, I like to return, and Bob and I are both practicing lawyers, you know, we go to court, we see things, and and we see them from the client's perspective. And poor people that are out there are going to lose a child or their house or a, a major, uh, perhaps a, a very important Social Security right that they might have. They don't have any lawyer. They don't have any place to go. The, the legal system then is... It doesn't look good to them, and in the long run, that is that is not a good thing for the country. Uh, you know, it's ironic that uh, there is, I think, a perception among the public. I, I know here in Massachusetts, there's been this debate recently with regard to uh, a proposal for a public law school, but there's a perception uh, that there are too many lawyers or plenty of lawyers to go around in this country. And yet we all know that there are also a number of people who can't get a lawyer to help them when they're facing a critical situation. How, how do we raise, how does the legal profession raise public awareness about the need for programs such as Civil Gideon? Well, I I mean, I I think it's happening. We were called a movement, which I was glad to see by one of the, um, uh, think tanks that opposes uh, things like this. Uh, they they were upset that there was a movement. It's it's good. It's a good thing to be a movement and uh, to be uh, airing on your kinds of programs. Um, I think that you're going to see this in the next three or four years because it has it has reached in the courts of California and I suspect elsewhere uh, by talking to some lawyers around the country a crisis in the sense that the judiciary is an independent this is something the public needs to perceive they're an independent part of the governmental structure the three parts to our government in California and the United States one of them is the judiciary it's got a function it's got to work and uh so uh how how can it uh, how can it work i think that if people identify with the effort and if there's enough public debate they will see it for what it is, and it is the need to hammer out just results in cases. I also think that they will understand a little better what lawyers do and indeed what judges do, which is always part of this effort. What is it that we're all doing down there in the courthouse? I I agree. I think as there are more cases being brought, more cases in which uh, interested groups, including in many cases, uh, former state court judges who have witness this problem of unjust results because of a lack of representation and they're voicing their support uh, for a right to counsel, you're going to get more public attention. But I I do want to tell you that the ABA in April of this year commissioned a survey that was conducted by Harris Interactive, and that survey reported uh, overwhelming support. Um, In fact, over two-thirds of the people responding said they thought it was extremely or very important that Americans have access to legal resources and advice when they're in crisis. So I, I do think there's a broad level of support already. Yeah. Uh, we're doing some public surveys um, in, and, um, in California. I think it's an important part of the movement. And one of the things that's been suggested by some of the surveys done is that the people assume they don't know, but they assume that there is a right to counsel. Uh, they assume that if they had to go to court to fight about their child or their house, 
that there would be a lawyer there for them. Uh, some people, some some percentage think that way. Uh, but also the surveys tend to support the idea that while you can get what I will call rancorous attacks on this program from certain sources, uh, the, the public, the voting public, presented with a coherent presentation, and the pilot program is going to add to that, think that this is a good thing to have. And when that happens, then the political process becomes more responsive. Uh, that certainly is, is the hope. Um, and uh, so I, th- I think it's something that the, the time has come. The legal safety net is, is shredded. Um, and uh, there are just thousands of people in California every day as we're doing this program who are going down the courthouse and they have no idea how to deal with code sections uh, that require certain things with discovery procedures. They just have no idea. It would be like saying to somebody, why don't you go over to the hospital? You've got access to the hospital, but you've got to do your own whatever. You've got to set your own elbow or do brain surgery, whatever it is you've got to do. It's important to you, of course, but there, are, there just aren't any doctors there. And Good luck. Well, gentlemen, we're just about at the end of our time, uh, and I do want to give each of you an opportunity to conclude with your final thoughts on this topic, uh, and also if you would like to uh, tell our listeners how they might follow up with you, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. So, uh, Bob Rothman, let me start with you and ask you for your final thoughts. Well, I, I want to echo what Jim just said. I think the American Bar Association recognized when it passed the resolution in 2006, that the adversary system of justice uh, in this country uh, puts the primary responsibility for advocating a position on the litigants. They're required to come up with relevant evidence. They have to identify the relevant legal principles. They have to present that evidence. And the judge has to be neutral in that proceeding. They're not aware that they don't have a right to counsel, and it's really undermining public confidence in our judicial system when people show up in court They're being threatened with eviction. They're being threatened with other loss of basic needs, and they can't get legal assistance. It's it's a crisis in confidence in the judicial system in the United States. It's fundamental to uh, the right to justice. It has to be a meaningful access, not just access. And I think there is a groundswell of support and and a movement underway on a state-by-state basis to support this. There there are two places I can encourage people to go. One is uh, the the website for the Civil Right to Counsel. It's simply civilrighttocounsel.org. Or, of course, the ABA website, uh, abanet.org, and they could go to the website within that of the Standing Committee on Legal Aid and Indigent Defendants, and they'll get more information, not just on what the ABA is doing, but what what state commissions on access to justice, such as the one Jim serves on, are doing in more than half of the states where those are organized. And they're also welcome, of course, to contact me for more information. The section of litigation welcomes the support of uh, any attorneys interested in this issue. I just want to say it's a pleasure to be on with Bob, who's uh, fought for this for so many years. I I think the right to counsel is a moral issue and should be seen as a moral issue. And the reason I say that is that every, if I may, every religion with which I am somewhat familiar uh, teaches, suggests, religious leaders, that one owes an obligation uh, as part of the religious approach to things, to assist the poor, 
That 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 is. I, I don't know of religion that doesn't have that. And so the, the 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 functional question for the courts is, who are they there to serve? Well, of course, if uh, you know a client this afternoon comes to me and I'll represent them and I'll charge them and that'll be fine and we'll go down to court and we'll have our day in court. But uh, what about uh, how are the courts in California? presently positioned to service the millions of people that we have in this huge state who uh, who need to go to court. Maybe they don't want to go, but they have to go in the, on the civil side. And so it, there is a way to see this as a moral issue uh, that uh, I think will help support this this great pilot pro- program in California, which our chief has, has really accomplished. All right, and would you like to uh, uh, have our, our listeners follow up with you in any way, Jim? Well, uh, I mean, they could they they could uh, talk to me or uh, you know Jim Brosnahan in San Francisco. They, we have our commission. I will certainly forward any things that they have to the commission uh, if they would like to do that. There's also I should mention before the program ends, retired yeah. judge in California, Earl Johnson, who has been working on this issue for 40 years. He's a wonderful repository of knowledge about these issues, both in the United States and around the world. He lectures all over the place, and he really has been the guiding light for many of us. Very good. And my being in Massachusetts, I would be remiss if I, I didn't mention uh, Mike Greco, uh, a Boston lawyer, was the uh, the president of the ABA uh, in the year that the uh, uh, ABA uh, endorsed yeah. this, this concept. And, and, and Mike uh, uh, was the very first guest we ever had on this Lawyer to Lawyer uh, program uh, in our first episode of this program. So Mike's uh, been a great leader appreciate on this the work and he he's done. continues to go around the country speaking on the issue. Well, uh, thank you very much to, to both of you for taking the time to be with us today and, and for the work that you've done uh, in promoting uh, Civil Gideon and uh, really appreciate the time uh, that you've given us and the thoughts and uh, would like to uh, remind our listeners that they can find this and all of our past programs at thelegaltalknetwork.com and also in the podcast library of iTunes. Uh, That about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks again to our guests, and we will be back next week with another episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.